Alice McDermott once told a class of third graders that to be a writer was to have homework due for the rest of your life. In a new collection of essays called What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction, she shares her observations on the challenges and rewards of life spent writing and reading fiction. Alice McDermott is the author of eight popular and critically acclaimed novels, including The Ninth Hour, Someone, and Charming Billy, which won the National Book Award. She's also a longtime writing teacher at Johns Hopkins University and the Sewanee Writers' Conference. Along with sharing some of her experiences, she's included examples of great writing in this book from Dickens, Faulkner, and Virginia Woolf. It's, it's published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux, and I'm very pleased that it brings Alice McDermott to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Lenny. Good to hear from you again. Yeah, I always enjoy talking with you. Uh, you've had two professional careers as a writer of fiction and as a teacher of writing. Have those careers ever been in conflict? Ah, interesting question. Um, I suppose time-wise, uh, yes. Um, I think when you're a writer first, absolutely everything else in your life is a conflict. <laughs> it takes uh -huh. you away from where you're supposed to be, which is at your desk, messing around with sentences. Well, um, do, is it just a matter of paying the bills? Oh, no, because there's also um, something that I'm missing because I have retired from full-time teaching, um, and that is, number one, an opportunity to work out um, the craft, uh, to work out the nuts and bolts of telling a story or writing a novel um, with a bunch of really smart, mostly young, not necessarily all writers. Um, so there's that. And there's also um, something I really miss. And that is when I read something wonderful, I have somebody I can force to read it as well. <laughs> This is an assignment. You must read what I want to talk about. My family does not cooperate as much. Um, yeah, well, you're I not grading them. <laughs> you quote John Barth's claim that no one can teach writing. You can only coach. Yes, I love that. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's that's a good part of it, um, that it's not just encouraging, um, it's giving tips, it's learning, uh, sort of passing on your own experience uh, as a writer. Um, and, you know, it's this whole question of can you teach writing, can you teach someone to be a great novelist? Um, I suppose I, I'm, I'm straddling the, the answer in, I think great novelists are probably born, it's in their DNA, but even a great athlete needs a coach. We know that. Well, this is your first collection of essays. Have you been writing them all along? Yes, well, <laughs> I've always thought of them as kind of homework assignments. <laughs> um, usually, um, many of them were lectures that I gave, as you mentioned, at the Sewanee Writers Conference, um, which I would always think of as, this is my summer task. I have to think of something to talk about for 40 minutes um, on a morning at the Sewanee Writers Conference. And um, for years, I would buckle down and and write these and then get up at the conference and deliver them and then be so grateful that my homework had been turned in. Uh, <laughs> I would put them in a drawer and never look at them again. Um, and it was my um, my editor, uh, who's been my editor throughout my career, who keeps who kept asking me, you know, what about these? What where are they? Um, Your editor, Jonathan so Galassi. Yes, Jonathan Galassi. Um, 
And so finally, when, when I did retire from Hopkins, he said, isn't it time to share um, these ideas with the world? And honestly, I've always sort of um, felt some dismay when novelists I love come out with craft books. You know, it always made me think, oh, either they're getting really old <laughs> or, or the fiction is drying up. Um, so I have to say, I, I put these together with some reluctance. And did you find some from the past that you thought, oh, gee, I can't include that? <laughs> Fortunately, no. Um, the thing I was most surprised to find, um, because I, I realized, um, you know, there, there's no better way to teach writing than to find something wonderful and say to a young writer, just read this. You know, I can't explain what happens here. You got to just read it. Um, so I was sort of happy to find that the many excerpts that, that I was using in my lectures, um, each one of them was unique and different um, and was a pleasure to revisit. Uh, there's a couple of very long passages, um, a whole story um, from Mark Halperin mm. in the, the first essay. I appreciated uh, your including the whole thing, but it is a, a small, but it's three pages, so. Yes, uh, right, right, yeah, but it's, it's, still, it's still enough. It's not um, cheating. I, Right. Well, I think we all are reluctant students when it comes to block quotes. You know, you look at it and it's like, oh, you want me to read this whole thing? <laughs> you know. Um, but it was just delightful to revisit and to see all those things that I had quoted over 20 years that I thought um, aspiring writers would be inspired by were still inspiring to me. Well, what about style? Uh, isn't essay writing a lot more conversational? Yes, I think that's true. I think that that's very much the case. And um, whether you're going to deliver it as a lecture or simply know that it's going to be published in the New Yorker, <laughs> I've always preferred the lectures. <laughs> it, it actually it, it always worried me that they were recorded because um, th that 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 sort of adds an extra burden. Um, you can't just say too many things off the cuff, mm -hmm. um, but. I did like the conversational tone, and I always felt that I was delivering these as a fellow writer to a group of writers. Um, so not so not so much the formality of a magazine format uh, where there's a wide audience. Um, but the thing I was also reluctant about, um, in many ways, these are personal essays, um, and and you know. That um, that first person pronoun is something um, that I recoil from. <laughs> That's why I'm a fiction writer. I'm not terribly interested in myself. I'm interested in in the characters I make up. Well, there's. Uh, I, I was mentioning style. Don't writers of of fiction often get overly attached to their own gorgeous turns of phrase? You you caution that a beautiful sentence can be a byproduct of good storytelling, but maybe. It shouldn't be the goal. In the case of the essay, you don't even have to worry about that. <laughs> That's true, although I, I, I could probably think of a few essays I've read where um, the language became maybe a little bit inflated. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, or you could see a writer straining uh, too much after um, something else. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's it's that whole question. I think it's Eudora Welty, who I quote in the book, um, that uh, that beauty must always have something of the inadvertent about it. Um, it's it, if you're trying too hard, um, it, it's going to show. Uh, but it's that sense of 
in the sincere, uh, authentic pursuit of a sentence that will convey what needs to be conveyed, you may inadvertently write something really beautiful. But that sincere and authentic pursuit has to be the goal, not the beautiful sentence. And sometimes I'm turned off by a tortured sentence that uh, is obviously uh, something being shown off. Well, that's the risk of, um, and I guess this is why I I, um, hesitate to uh, write personal essays and and to make too much of the I um, of me, (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I think the risk, and I see this a lot, especially in in bright young writers who are trying really hard, um, the writing is too much about themselves. They're they're self-consciously creating beautiful sentences or uh, characters who they think might be in some way controversial or get them some attention, um, rather than putting themselves, their own egos, their own observations, their own sentence making, the way they use language, um, at the service of the story. Um, not the other way around. Not the story is meant to uh, shine a bright light on their own uh, delightful selves, <laughs> but more um, you as the author are simply at the service of the story uh, in the hopes that you can provide the reader um, with what is needed. What about the title of this collection? What about the baby? Can you explain its connection to Lillian Hellman's memoir, Pentimento? <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to do this briefly. Uh, a friend of mine years ago. You can ago take your time. Was, uh, explain it completely. <laughs> it's not that complicated. Huh. But uh, this friend of mine was a volunteer to uh, to uh, help out at a, a, a senior living facility in New England, um, and they asked if she would. Uh, if, if she would facilitate a, um, a movie night where the uh, mostly older women um, could watch a movie and then have a discussion about it. So the, the first movie that she chose at the time was Julia, um, based on Lillian Hellman's Pentimento. She thought um, the women would identify uh, with World War II. That's when they were in their youth, and she seemed like a very good choice. Um, and of course, there's a scene in the movie where um, uh, Lillian Hellman and Julia meet um, to exchange some money for the underground. And Julia tells Lillian that she's had a baby, um, but she has moved the baby out of Berlin uh, just over the border and is the baby is being raised by a baker. Um, so the, the movie goes on and there is a moment at the end where you see Lillian Hellman going in and out of bakeries looking for Julia's baby, mm. but she never finds it. So when the movie was over, my friend, um, thinking these women would just have so many memories to share about <laughs> World War II and the Nazis, <laughs> um, the only thing they wanted to talk about was what happened to the baby. Mm. Where's the baby? This is a terrible story. You can't just say, well, she never found the baby. That doesn't make any sense. The baby had to be somewhere. Um, and it became a refrain um, telling, as I told that story to, to a lot of young writers in workshops, it became a refrain as they were looking at each other's stories. And 
a character was dropped or um, something, a theme that seemed to have been developing is suddenly gone from from the piece. Um, it became a refrain to say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, but what about the baby? Do you think you it know? reveals you think it reveals something about what we look for in a story? Oh, I think very much so. I think it reveals the human element. Um, I think that, you know, before you have all these heady themes in your fiction um, or before you make grand statements about politics or history or uh, what it is to be human and all that, you have as an author created human beings uh, on the page. And and I think that's what most readers are drawn to first. Um, I am I am reading this novel in order to live the life of someone who is not myself. Um, and so if characters appear and then disappear, um, if they've um, made a mark on our consciousness as we read or pulled at our heartstrings, um, it's it's really the author's obligation to say, well, what happened to that baby? <laughs> Well, are you also writing the novel to uh, experience something that isn't yourself? Oh, I think very much so. I think I think readers and writers, um, you know, we really are collaborators more than anything else. So the things that a reader that I look for as a reader, and I think any reader looks for, um, are, are very much the same things that a writer is looking for in his or her own work. Um, so yeah, that that involvement on the human level, um, you know, a, a, a writer says, "I am just making these people up." You know, they're just they're just made of words, but I want you to believe in them. And the reader says, "Okay, I will." Um, while I mean, when you think about it, reading is an act of tremendous generosity, um, and reading fiction even more so. Um, because no one's saying, well, after you read this, you'll be smarter about, no, not necessarily right. about you're anything. Not know, you're not going to know what really happened uh, during World War II or something. Like <laughs> exactly, or right. The White House. You're into, right. You're entering into a story, a creation of, of language. Um, and Although a, I have to say, the recent books about what's been going on in Washington over the last four or five years, do sound like works of fiction. I don't mean that they sound like works of fiction. They just sound like, well, how can you believe any of that stuff? Well, there, that's it, too. But Real but, life uh, sometimes can sound like fiction. Exactly. There's lots in life that fiction can't get away with um, because fiction has to make it believable. Uh, <laughs> and life doesn't. Um, you know, we can say that that I can't believe that happened, but it did. Um, journalists, uh, you know, that that they they're much luckier than we fiction writers are because they can just say I know it sounds unbelievable but it really happened. The fiction writer has to say, "Oh, it sounds unbelievable. I better make it more believable." My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Alice McDermott, a National Book Award-winning author. Uh, she now has a collection of essays called "What About the Baby: Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction." published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Do you have a, an ideal reader in mind when you're writing a, a work of fiction? Oh, not an individual. No, I th again, I think it's, um, it's that sense of gratitude that you have, you know, everybody's welcome, <laughs> you know, if you're willing to pick up the book 
and and give your attention um, to this world that I've created. Uh, it's just between the two of us. I mean, it's you know, it's the remarkable and wonderful thing about reading um, in that it really is um, a writer's mind and a reader's mind. Um, it's 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 wonderfully intimate in that way. And and for a reader to say, I will lend my inner voice, that voice with which I speak to myself, to you, the author, for as ever long it takes for you to tell your story is, is sort of a marvelous uh, collaboration. So I'm just really grateful. But <laughs> you know? Are you ever surprised by a, a reader's reactions? What was your reaction when an acquaintance asked if someone was going to die in your next book, too? <laughs> yes, I remember. Um, yes, of course. Uh, these, these are the slings and arrows of, of being a professional storyteller. Um, it was on, on the, the carpool line when, when my kids were in school and... Um, a friend confronted me and, and said, are you, are you working on another novel? Which is always a question that, that absolutely um, puzzles me. Um, I, I say in the book, it's something akin to, are you still feeding your children? Um, of course I'm working on, I'm a novelist. Why Sometimes you're working on two at the same time. <laughs> often, often, you know, but I mean, I don't think you would say to your dermatologist, are you still looking at people's skin or are you doing something else, you know? Um, but you get that question quite often. And, and, and then this friend followed it up with, is someone going to die in this novel mm -hmm. too? It seems like your novels are all about people dying or knowing people who die. Um, and of course, uh, again, there's a reader, gotta be, gotta be grateful, at least you read them. Um, but your first reaction is always, well, to hell with you, I'm gonna write a novel in which nobody dies, so there. <laughs> <laughs> the title of the first essay in this collection is What I Expect. Do you think that you set the bar very high as a reader and as a writer? In some ways, I do, but um, again, something that that I was happy to realize as I revisited these essays is um, every single one of the examples I give, including that um, complete short story by Mark Halpern that that starts the essay, um, meets that bar. Um, so I, I, it seems to me, if you can say enough people are doing it, then um, it can't be as impossible as I might be making it sound. Well, I wrote a couple of novels when I was very young, never got published for, for good reason. But I think that they were that experience always was in the back of my head when I was reading certain kinds of books. Yes, well, you're wise. I mean, you're, you're bringing a reader, a writer's sensibility to to your reading. Yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. But um, but I still think you know the the joy of of being a reader. Um, put aside whatever you do in your day job, whether it's a writer or not. Um, that that immersive falling into mm. story, going um, into somebody else's world. Yes, exactly. Um, is you know, is so rewarding. And again, I think if we think about it, it's so remarkable. It's it's an exercise in generosity. It's an exercise in um, compassion. Um, maybe we don't give enough uh, credit to the act itself of um, of sitting quietly with a, a writer's voice and, and a reader, um, just the two of us. In a recent interview in the New York Times Book Review, you revealed, not surprisingly, that you'd been an avid reader as a child. 
Uh, what were some of your favorites? Do you think that the things that you were drawn to reveal something about where you went? I think it's just the, the, the falling in love with books. I mean, I think I realized, um, you know, maybe as an adolescent that books meant a little bit more to me than to some of the other people I knew. Um, but I, I think it's just that, um, once you've had that experience of being absorbed into a book, um, the thing that you do as soon as you finish is you look for it again. You know, um, it's a junkie kind of thing. <laughs> you know, uh, where where can I where can I find that experience again? Where can I be moved in that way again? Where can I find a sentence that just suddenly makes me see the whole world in a new way? Um, and and you know, I think those of us who are readers. Uh, uh, understand um, the value of that. Uh, it's a, there's a great joy in it. Um, you know, I suppose you could say as any of the arts um, and even the sciences, you know, uh, those things that um, when you're engaged with them, um, all question of uh, what's it all about or, or why is it worth it fall away. Um, and there's a sense of joy in something well-crafted and moving and fascinating and interesting, all those things. When, were you, when you were young and starting out, were you open to advice from, other, from older writers? Oh, very much so. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, and I knew I didn't know what I was doing. Um, well, you, did and, you seek out teachers whose work was similar to yours? Because there's such a wide range out there. You could be writing realistic novels. You could be writing fantasy. You could be writing science fiction. Sure, yeah. Um, I think for me, um, you know, being a, a middle-class Long Island kid— um, who never knew a living writer, <laughs> never met a writer. Um, you know, my, my parents were chagrined, to, to put it mildly, um, when I first even uh, broached the subject of maybe I would like to write for a living. Um, the advice was always go to Katie Gibbs and get your typing skills up and go work for a publisher if that's really what you want to do. Um, I, I simply needed, as a, as a young writer starting out, I needed uh, someone of some intelligence and authority to say, yes, you should do this. Yes, pursue <laughs> it. Nothing's guaranteed. Um, but you have enough of what it seems to take that it's worthwhile for you to pursue that. So I never looked for any particular writer to study with. Um, I was just taking shots in the dark of writing my first little stories in college um, and showing them to professors um, and um, and having some of them change my life by saying, uh, yeah, um, as one said, you're a writer and you'll never shake it. That's what I needed to hear. On the other hand, didn't uh, Thomas Williams, uh, a teacher at the University of New Hampshire, recommend that if you have a choice, no one should become a writer? <laughs> right. yes. yes, yeah. Um, the pain and glory of it all, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, you know, and I've seen this as a teacher time and time again, for those of us with it, I don't know, is it in our DNA? Is it in our souls? Um, is it is it somewhere buried in in our brain? Um, those of us who are told if you can do anything else, do it, and know immediately. Mm -hmm. No, I don't really. I. It's not that I can't. It's that I don't want to. 
um, I can probably do something else, but I'll be a miserable person. <laughs> um, not just that I like to write, but I must write. And where it goes and who reads it and what kind of career I have is all secondary to that I don't know how to live in the world if I don't somehow wrestle it through language by writing. Why is so much time spent during writing workshops on crafting first sentences? Doesn't an author have limitless choices before that first sentence is written? Yes, that's the that's the scary part. Um, the uh, Seamus Heaney, the great Irish writer, says of poets, we must teach ourselves to walk on air against our better judgment. Um, and until you write that first sentence, um, absolutely everything is possible. But as soon as you write it, um, much is confined. It's already setting limits? Uh, it's setting limits. It was a dark and stormy night is a certain kind of story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you're going to start with that line, um, there are places your story can't go 30, 40, 100 pages later. Um, so, yeah, it, it's there's voice, there's atmospherics, there's commitment, um, commitment to a particular story. Uh, and in some ways, this is this is how I try to make sense for for. Uh, non-reading friends when they hear writers of fiction say, well, I just had, that had to happen in the story. I had no choice. Um, and the skeptics say, wait a minute, you're just, you're the writer and you're just making this up. Of course you had a choice. Um, but well, no, the logic of story is from that first sentence, you're limiting your choices. And the second sentence limits them more. And a certain character appears and that limits them more. And that's how stories take on a sense of inevitability, which is, as a reader, what I want to find. On the other hand, I'm assuming that when you start a book, you have some ideas of what you want to do. But new things occur along the way. Absolutely. Right. And that goes so back the, to that. So you're not only, you're, maybe you're limited in one way, but you're also not limited in the other way. That's true. That's true. And, and it goes back to that crafting of the individual sentence, um, because I'm a great believer, in, and not so much because I've seen it happen in my own work, but I've seen it happen over so many years of teaching. I'm a great believer in how the crafting of sentences sort of evokes the unconscious in the, in the writer. Um, simply choosing the right word, trying to write a sentence that has a certain rhythm, that has a certain, yeah, beauty, um, uh, a certain construction that, uh, that evokes a voice. In working at words, just to achieve that, um, I think the writer calls on everything in herself or himself. How did you get this language that you're working? Who taught you the words that you know? What did you read that taught you about the rhythm of sentences? And all that comes to bear. And that's when I think what the writer didn't quite know about the story before the actual work of writing it um, begins to show itself. And that's when you know writers say, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was going to happen until I wrote it. Some of the opening lines you quote have become part of the culture, like call me Ishmael or yes. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. So what qualities make those first lines so memorable? Well, as, as I um, 
as I think I concluded the essay, um, or at least maybe something I, I had to learn by writing the essay, um, it's authority. It's the sense of immediately, here is a writer who's saying, I have a story to tell, and I know how to tell it, and I want you to come with me to the reader. Again, that collaboration of writer and reader. Um, there's, there's no hesitancy. There's no beating around the bush. There's no, well, I'm getting to the good part. Just wait, just keep reading. Um, I promise you this will get better. It's that immediate sense of this is a story and it must be told. And here it begins. Don't you often advise your students to look further into their story before they select their first sentence? Yeah, that often happens. Um, it often happens that uh, that the best of first sentences um, occur later in a first draft or even a second draft. When when the self consciousness has fallen fallen away a little bit, um, there there used to be a scene in. Um, now I'm really dating myself in the Honeymooners. <laughs> it's okay. When um, I, I have a feeling that. A fair number of my listeners have seen at least one of the the Honeymooner shows. <laughs> Good. Well, the, Norton would be sitting down about to write something, and Ralph would be pacing behind him. Um, and and Norton would do all these gestures before he would lick the pencil and wave his arms about um, until Ralph would finally like hit him in the head and say, just write it down. Hmm. And young writers do a lot of that. They do a lot of licking of the pencil <laughs> and waving their arms around um, and saying, here I go, going to write, here it is, um, and, and write an awful lot of stuff before they get to what they should be writing. Although um, now, aren't they mostly working on computers? Sure, yeah. You that don't want to lick the keys. Know. Exactly. <laughs> they're, they're still hitting the keys and, um, and feeling great because they look at the page or the word count and say, I am really I'm cooking here. Um, but they haven't gotten to their story yet. Uh, so sometimes the, the coach, the writing coach, um, has, has to be uh, kind of the Ralph Cramden and knock them in the head and say, tell your story. Just tell the story. Stop with the gestures. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large is Alice McDermott. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Maybe some thoughts on the art of fiction, published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. Her other books include Charming Billy, which won a National Book Award, That Night, At Weddings and Wakes, After This, which was a final. They, all of those were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. So um, she's somebody who, who knows a bit about writing. Um, now, how can a I mentioned earlier, essays are, are more conversational. So how can a story begin to draw you in? Is it the language? 
I think so. I think so. You know, um, we're inundated with story. Um, you know, the stories are happening all the time. And, and on TV and gossip, on the Internet, people oh my are writing gosh. me. What I'm most aware of is how many things are misspelled. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh, you can't let that bother you. <laughs> oh, well, too late now. I'm still upset when people say less instead of few. So what can I do? And between you and I, yes. right? A lot, they use I all the time when me should be there. Of course, of course. Drives me crazy, <laughs> um, uh, as my children will attest. Um, but but I think, you know, what what fiction, what what the best fiction does is um, is is give you more than story. It, it is um, it's it's, you know, it has some of the mystery of poetry, uh, the best fiction. It, it has the the idea that that our language is beautiful and complex um, and and can evoke many layers of experience and emotion um, and memory uh, if it's used well and carefully. Uh, and so, yeah, story has to be there. Of course, we're all looking for the story and we want to be drawn into the story. Um, but, but especially with the way we're inundated with story, I think it's the careful use of language um, and the sense that there is behind this story, the creating this story, um, a creative intelligence um, who is selecting every detail with a purpose, every turn of phrase with a purpose, every character, every setting, every new chapter. Um, there's a creative intelligence who's making decisions in order to craft something that you may never have seen before. Um, that's sort of the magic and the mystery of fiction. But you caution that a beautiful sentence can be a byproduct of good storytelling. Maybe it shouldn't be the goal. Exactly. I, I, again, I think it's um, it's that that trying too hard. Uh, <laughs> that's coercing the language. Um, I think because a beautiful sentence is isn't isn't just something that sits there. Um, a sentence that really works well uh, in a, in a, any given story or novel um, works on many levels. Um, it may seem simple enough, and yet um, suddenly you realize you've teared up, or you're laughing, or um, again you've, you're seeing something that you've seen every day in your ordinary life in a whole new way. Um, so it's, it's more than just pretty language. Pretty language gets you into trouble. Nobody really trusts pretty language anymore anyway. <laughs> you know, We don't trust those, those highfalutin words. Um, but, but the confluence of character and situation um, and, and detail and story can bring us to those moments when we realize we've just read something that's going to stay with us. Um, and that, again, it's just the joy of something that's well-crafted. Well, the opening of a story is a time to create a world and establish a voice. But uh, as the middle of the book approaches, what's the writer's next task? Yeah, middle of book syndrome, <laughs> mobs. 
rhymes with sobs. Is this something writers talk about a lot? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the difficult part. You know, the getting started, you have all these great ideas. And now, do you have an uh, idea of how the story will develop when you beginning, begin writing uh, a work? I think, I think most writers do. Even if you understand that's not where the story is going to take you or that you may have to let go of all those plans and your careful outlines um, as the story develops. But I think, at least I know, um, just just to have the courage um, to start uh, on the long pursuit um, of, of telling a story uh, in 300 pages, um, I think you have to have some vague idea. Uh, but you also have to be willing to let it go as you discover the story, just as you hope the, the reader will discover the story. And did when you come to the end, do you sometimes reconsider things that came before? Oh, all the time. This is why um, one of the things that I beat students over the head with and, and readers of these essays at one point um, so many young writers, especially if they're working on a long piece, a novel, uh, don't want to reread what they've already written. You know, they'll say, I've written the first five chapters. I don't have to look at them now. I just have to write the next five chapters. Um, and it only, it, you know, it seems to me only logical. Well, everything you add has the possibility of changing everything that has come before. Um, so what should they be looking for when they're rereading the first draft? Redundancies, connections, or just both, clumsy language? Yeah. Yes, all those things. But but I think connections um, is actually, you know, the the primary thing. Um so many times I've, I've uh, talked to young writers about their first drafts and I've said, you know, do you realize that this character has made this gesture, this exact same gesture three times in three different circumstances? Um, and they'll look at their own work and they'll say, oh, sorry, that was redundant. And then they'll say, but, you know, maybe I can use that. Um, you know, or or maybe that really says something about the character that I haven't thought about before. Maybe it's perfect that that same gesture mm -hmm. takes place um, three times through the story. But you have but to be aware of, of why you're doing it. Right. Exactly. I mean, you're just getting it down. You're just figuring it out. Um, in the first drafts, you might know. And this is what I talk about when we you know that that the subconscious um tapping into what you don't quite understand about your story, but somehow vaguely apprehend at the beginning, the thing that brings you to the page. I kind of think I want to write a story about this. It seems important, but I won't know how important it is until I begin to write it. Uh, that's the magic of it. Well, is it danger that you can reread your own work so many times that you become dulled by it? How do you reread with purpose? Yes, that that's that's a challenge. Um, that that's that's a challenge that um, you know sometimes it, it, it can become dulling. Um, sometimes you you miss it. Um, but I think if you're consistently adding on, um, this is you know in the middle of the composition. I'm not saying when when the book is finished. You know, I know as a writer when I've finished a book. I'd be very happy never to look at it again. <laughs> um, but you have to, then you go on a tour and you wind up reading passages from it anyway. Exactly, exactly. Um, but it's, you know, there is that sense of, 
okay, that's the best I can do. There it is. I think it's all there. I'm on to the next one. Um, but in the middle of composition, you know, there, there, there is that sense of, I'm not sure where I'm going. I thought I knew where I was going. Things are changing. So each thing you add um, should encourage you to look back at what you've already put down. And maybe it changes it. Maybe it illuminates it. Um, I just put that detail in there on the second page because I was just trying to slap this down. Hmm. But now that I'm on page 200, I can see how essential that detail is um, and I can make use of it. So if you're if you're rereading as an explorer, so to speak, um, of your of your own previous pages, um, then it's it's more exciting than than dulling. Well, you, you talked about uh young writers uh, discovering that they've been using the same phrase throughout their book. What about uh, when you're on the next book? Do you uh, tr try to make it very different from the previous book, or they, does one just automatically flow into the next? Yeah, I think um, I, I think maybe I talk a little bit about this in one of the essays. Mm. You know, there. Yeah, I do. When I'm talking about the uh, <laughs> the yeah, friend at the I carpool asked. line, <laughs> there's an awful lot of stuff you have to lock out of your workroom, so to speak, when when you're writing. Um, you have to forget about the ladies at the carpool line, and you have to forget about all your relatives and what are they going to think when they see this, and uh, you have to forget about the critics, and you also have to forget about everything else you've ever written. Um, this is a new story. Characters are being born um, in your story for the first time. You are always a novice when you start out, no matter how many novels or stories you've already written, because you're trying to tell a story you haven't told before, characters you haven't created before, and you're looking for those connections um, that make for story and for plot um, that you've never discovered before. So, Top among those, I think, is what you've already written. Um, so yeah, you've got to block that out. If, if I started out um, truly, although I have these thoughts when I'm driving home, hmm. um, well, to hell with them, I'm not going to write about another Irish Catholic, so there. <laughs> um, but if that's driving my writing, um, then, then I'm going to write some kind of propaganda or um, it's going to be a show-off piece, not uh, something authentic. How did you feel when Frank McCourt recognized and appreciated that the last line of your novel after this referred to a W.C. Fields movie? That was wonderful. <laughs> there are things. Um, I know some writers who do this. I'm not sure that I can say we all do it. Um, but, but often there are connections um, or motifs or themes or double meanings that, that um, you recognize as you're composing a piece but you sort of suspect nobody else is really gonna <laughs> recognize. Um, you know, so there's some pleasure in that. Um, and and when another, especially when another writer and a close reader as, as Frank was, um, takes a look and says, um, I get it. Uh, I see. I see that the motif of laughter and old timey comedians that, that has operated through this novel, um, is, is evoked in the very last lines, um, which seem to be spoken in a circumstance um, that, that seems perfectly realistic. Um, but it's also a kind of over the heads of the characters who are saying this um, out of realism, 
as an author, you're winking and saying, yeah, and that's also the title of a W.C. Fields movie. Although not all of your readers are going to catch that. Um, no, no. Alice and you Mc don't expect it. <laughs> Alice McDermott, uh, my guest on today's London Lopate at Large. Her latest book is not one of her novels. It's a collection of essays called What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction, published by Farris, Strauss, and Drew. And you mentioned uh, you're often described as a Catholic writer. Uh, do you see similarities between the creative process and the processes of faith? I do indeed. Um, and and again, the language uh, that's associated with the Catholic Church, a language of ritual, uh, which seems to enrich the lives of, of some of your characters? Oh, absolutely. The, the language of, of ritual and refrain, prayer, um, you know, which, which aligns very closely for me with stream of consciousness, with a, a particular point of view, with hope. Um, and, and, and also, um, you know, the, the idea of the ordinary transformed by language, really, into the extraordinary. Um, the bread and wine becoming something extraordinary uh, through, through a ritual. Um, I think all those things inform, um, you know, the, that, that idea that um, there is something complex, maybe even holy, in the most ordinary. Um, and we only have to find the way to look at it and think about it and describe it in order to recognize that. But if you're writing about Irish Americans, somebody else is writing about Polish Jews, and we can go on and on and on, you still have to do something that allows all of your readers to connect, whatever their background. Absolutely. I mean, and that's, um, you know, that's the beauty of it. I think if, if we approach uh, fiction um, with the idea that we're not looking for ourselves, <laughs> that, that we are uh, generously, as I said, um, you know, lending our, our uh, thoughts, our, the voice that's, that's in our head to a writer, uh, to the words, to the language, which you do when you read. Um, it, it's, we are saying we are willing to see life um, from the point of view, from the heart, from the soul, from the imagination of someone who is not ourselves. Um, it's tremendously generous. I mean, I sometimes wonder maybe because we're, we're uh, not the nation of readers we probably should be, we're a little less generous in other aspects of understanding one another. I don't know. I'm just thinking about that. <laughs> it's interesting that we're not a nation of readers, and yet we've produced some pretty great writers over the years. Why do you think that memoirs have become so popular, and have you ever considered writing one yourself? Oh, my. This is probably as close as I'll ever come to a memoir. I am so not interested in myself, and I have such a not interesting life. <laughs> um, uh, I think part of... Um, yeah, I, I, I think part of the appeal of, of memoir is the, um, the misunderstanding of what fiction does. I hear it all the time. I hear it at cocktail parties uh, here in the, inside the Beltway with, with lots of intelligent people saying important things. But then they'll say, you know, I don't read fiction. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm not interested in stuff that's just made up. I'm more interested in real stuff. But isn't it ironic that novelists are 
often accused of secretly writing autobiography while memoirs are accused of making things up? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. That's that's the question. The skeptical writer says to the memoirist, this didn't really happen. You're making it up. Um, and the skeptical reader says to the to the novel writer, um, ah, you didn't make that up. It really happened. <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> Why do you think there's been a spate of books featuring disturbing and gratuitous scenes of violence against women and girls? You resolved, you say, to stop reading those kinds of books. How do you even know? Yeah, I did for a while. And that, that, um, that, that's what uh, brought about the whole What About the Baby essay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, I think it's, um, we understand uh, that it's, um, it's, it's something that's hard to take your eyes away. Violence, uh, especially violence against women, especially violence against attractive young women. Um, is is a lore um, that's just in our nature. Um, people who uh, write TV dramas uh, certainly understand that. Um, I think again, young writers uh, not sure how to get the attention of an editor or a reader um, think that maybe by um, horrifying them <laughs> with violence, and if it's sexualized violence, even better, um, that will get the attention. Um, and and will move people. Um, you know, I, I hate to watch violent movies. Um, I hate to read violent sections of, of stories. Um, and part of the reason why I hate it is because I know I won't be able to get it out of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think young writers understand that and not and many not so young writers. Um, so so it's a in some ways, it's it's misunderstanding that uh, I can't get that terrible scene out of my head as a good, um, rather than I can't get that bit of compassion and wisdom that I learned from this novel out of my head. Um, so I, it's a, it's a shorthand. It 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 appeals to a kind of base um, instinct or horror in all of us. Um, yeah, and I I got to a point some years back um, that I just sent, I felt like I was reading so many rapes in contemporary fiction. I just said, not going to do it anymore. I'm allowed to do that. But what about <laughs> the uh, the call f- by many people to ban Nabokov's Lolita? After all, Humbert Humbert um, pretty much molests the girl he, he names uh, Lolita when she's 12 years old. Right. Um, but it's still considered a great work of fiction. How do you balance the two it is a great work of fiction i agree with that um it's uh, is it the language is it something else or is it that it gives us insight into uh, a a terrible person's mind i think it's probably all those things um you know it's sort of horrifying and also i think an indication of the art um of how often you even as a contemporary um aware feminist reader um, can feel compassion for this horrible man. Um, you understand something about him as a human being, despite what he does. Um, that's the that's in the language. That's in, that's the artistry of it. Um, it's not uh, an appeal to simply our base instincts, our um, rubbernecking inability to turn away from something awful. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's an invitation to see the humanity 
even in this awful character or this character who does awful things and to understand, oh my gosh, he's me. Um, yes, we have, we have our humanity in common. Um, that's wonderful and scary. Um, and that's what I think great art can do. So I don't think it's, it's a matter of banning a subject. I would never say you can never write about rape again, um, but it's how the subject is, is used um, and, and how the writer is able to, in some ways, uh, transcend the subject and bring us to something about all of us uh, we have, that we can see. We have just a minute left. Uh, are you willing to talk about what you're working on now, or do you prefer not to talk about a work in progress? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, uh, I'm sticking with a very bad habit that I developed many years ago. Um, and that is I'm, um, well up to my elbows in two different novels. Uh -huh. Um, we'll see which one pulls And ahead. Do they talk to each other? <laughs> do they, the, do the two novels, uh, have a conversation in a way? I hope not. Uh -huh. <laughs> they better not. <laughs> but do they, but do you know when you've uh, written 300 pages, it's time to stop? Cause all the your books are pretty much uh, around 300 pages. Yeah, and, and many of them I planned, I thought they would be longer, um, but they tell me, that's it, you've done it. Um, you've, you've said it, you, you know, you got to that, um, you got to that W.C. Fields line, <laughs> and, well. and, and now it's time to step away. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's always a pleasure talking with you, Alice McDermott. I'm such an admirer of your work. Uh, now a collection of essays to go along with all of the, uh, the award-winning novels. This is called What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction, published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more of our shows, you can access our archive at WBAI.org and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. There are also links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a moment to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of the listeners who have the finances to do so to step up right now, make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep this kind of unique, in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Without your help, there's, there's absolutely no way that this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, can remain on the air. So why not make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopez at large so we can keep bringing you the kind of programming you won't hear anyone else? And you might consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. That really helps us to plan for the future. Again, the number to call, 212-209-2950. You can go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who's already stepped up, support the station in the name of London Lopez at large. Thank you so much. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when legal scholar Erwin Chemerinsky, the, the dean of the law school at UC Berkeley, will discuss his new book, which is called Presumed Guilty, how the Supreme Court empowered the police and subverted civil rights. 
We'll see you then.